I love Easter. <laughs> it is fun. Yeah, do you? That's good. I do too. Uh, so yesterday we had this uh, this Easter fair, and I just wanted to just wanted to tell you it was so so good. We had so much fun yesterday. We had we had hundreds of people coming in through these uh, into this place into the parking lot, and I got dunked eighty five times in one hour. <laughs> that happens. Yeah, uh, and, and I just wanted to say a huge thank you to wherever Tiffany Bodlack is, and, and Joel was part of that too, but Tiffany and Joel, there's Joel at least, but just poured themselves out in, in preparing this, and I'm so, so thankful for you guys and for the connections that were made, and the, uh, just uh, for a lot of people, first time in, in our building, first time in this space, so thank you so much, uh, Bodlacks, for that. Now that was uh, that was kind of a that was a, a new thing. It was an exciting thing because we haven't been able to do something like that for a few years. But I want to start out this morning in a little, a little change of pace, going a little bit of a different direction here to start. Um, I, I think for a lot of people in our world, there is this sense that the world just kind of goes in circles. It, it goes on repeat. That we we experience the same kinds of things over and over again, and it becomes kind of tiresome, actually. You, you look up the weather forecast in North Vancouver, and this is what you see on a regular basis, right? It's just, just rain. Thankfully, weather forecasts are oftentimes dumb and wrong, because it's not raining, I don't think, right now. But, uh, but we see that over and over again. You look at the NHL standings, and there are the Canucks in their familiar place near the bottom, right? Which is a lukewarm Winnipeg Jets fan I don't really care very much about, but I know that's a thing. Um, you know, you hear about just another wave of COVID, another variant, and you wonder how many Greek letters in the alphabet are there? What happens when we run out of them, you know? But it's just, for, for a lot of the last two years, it's felt like the same debate, same numbers, same messages over and over and over again, and it gets even heavier, right? We heard about this mass shooting in New York last week, and, and the truth is, over the last decade or two decades, that kind of thing, we've, we've become desensitized to, because it seems like almost every other week, there's, a, there's another gunman, there's another van driver, there's another hijacker. There was a, an attack in Nigeria a couple of weeks ago that killed, I think, 32, 32 Christians, but there was one in January that killed 18, and there was one last November that killed 10, and I think displaced 700 Christians from their homes, and there was another one last August that left 43 Christians dead, and, and so it just goes around and around, and it's why the biblical author of Ecclesiastes wrote this. He said, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. See, the, the faces and the forms might change, but the fundamentals of human conduct and, and the kinds of things that happen on the world stage just tend to repeat themselves. A lot of us were shocked a couple of months ago when, uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, but there are still people among us who remember World War II when, when nations were invading nations all over the place. It just goes around and, and around, and it's true in our own lives too. Have you, have you ever kind of pledged that you were never going to become like your parents? Do you ever do that? And then you realize a decade or two later, oh shoot, it's happening. Uh, one of our elders sent, uh, sent me a little video exactly about that. So uh, here you go. There's a little humor for you this morning. I like everything.
can't you tell? I hated it. <laughs> That's good. That's humorous. <laughs> but for some people, it's not that humorous, right? You see the mistakes of your ancestors. You, you see the mistakes of previous generations just playing again in your life. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, can, can somebody tell this guy that it's supposed to be a happy day today? It's Easter Sunday, like reading Ecclesiastes on Easter Sunday. I'm never coming to this church again, amen? Um, that's what some of you are thinking. And we're gonna get to the good stuff really soon, I, I promise. But you don't, you can't really get there until you realize where we are apart from Easter. You don't get to, to Easter without going through Good Friday. You don't get to the resurrection without going through the crucifixion. You, you, have, to, you have to kind of uh, be aware of, of this, is, this is where the world is, is at. And, and speaking of the crucifixion, I, I think for the disciples in the first century, the cross itself would have felt like like a kind of a tiresome repeating of what had, of the kinds of things that always happened in the Roman Empire. I mean, we think about crucifixion as unique, right? We look at the cross, we're like, that's Jesus. We identify with him right away. But the truth is, the Romans would crucify just about anybody for any reason. The Roman leader Crassus once crucified 6,000 people in one shot, just lined the Appian Way in Italy with, with crosses. They, they squashed any would-be rebel. So there were a lot of would-be messiahs in first century Jewish world who eventually, you know, a lot of people put their hope in them, put their, put their trust in them, and, and then saw the Romans kind of uh, put it down. And, and so for the disciples, it must have felt like this is just a familiar story. We believe Jesus would change everything. We believe that he was the Messiah, the anointed one. But, but no, it's just like every other story. Nothing new under the sun. Until suddenly, a couple days later, a few days later, there was something dramatically incredibly, uniquely new that took place. So let's pray and then get into it. Jesus, uh, as we come here today, maybe some of us are feeling that sense of a weariness in this world. And, and we feel trapped, perhaps. We feel stuck in the old. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would instill a new hope in people who are in that situation. I pray, Lord, that you would open up our minds and our hearts to know the truth of the resurrection and that you would fill us with your hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna be in Romans 6, verses one to five today. So if you've got your Bibles, that's where you wanna be. Romans 6, Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
So Paul starts out in the same place where we kind of started out. Shall we go on sinning? Here is the wearisome of the weariness of the world. It's not just it's not just what we see on the world stage. It's not just what we see from generation to generation. It's in our own lives, where we see ourselves repeating the same mistakes, living in the same kinds of harmful, sinful patterns without any ability, it seems, to reverse course. Shall we go on sinning? But Paul says that there is a possibility of something new, a new life, like a genuinely new life, not just, not just uh, uh, this, this fruitless uh, pursuit of new experiences that are really just different takes on old ones, but a genuinely new life, no longer in bondage to the old ways and patterns. And how does that come? Well, Paul links it to the resurrection of Jesus. He says, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And I want to start there. Just as Christ was raised from the dead. Go back to the first century. The disciples are without hope. They're despairing. They're hiding behind locked doors because their Lord, their leader, has been crucified. And they know that they're next if the authorities have their way. So they're, they're, they're terrified. They're, they're hiding. On Sunday, so Jesus dies on a Friday. On Sunday, some of the women who followed Jesus go to the tomb. And they're surprised because the huge stone in front of the tomb has been rolled away. And there are some very shiny men who want to talk to them. And we understand that these are angels. But they tell them, he is not here. He's risen. He's alive. And the, the, the women run back and they tell the disciples, Peter and John sprint to the tomb and they don't find the shiny men, but they find the open, empty tomb and they're, and they're confused. They don't know what this means. Later that day, though, most of the disciples are, are gathered together behind those, those locked doors and suddenly Jesus appears. He's there and he's not an illusion He's not a ghost. He's not a, a warm, fuzzy feeling in their hearts. He goes, look, it's me. You can, you can touch me. You can feel my side, my, my hands. Look where the nail holes are. It really is me. And can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine being cast into the pit of despair and, and then for in a moment that to be erased and reversed and transformed into incomprehensible, unparalleled joy? I mean, so, some of, if you're a sports fan like me, you've experienced this to some extent. You know, where you're like, you're watching your team and you're so frustrated with them because they're losing, they're gonna, they, they failed, the game is lost. You're like, this is the worst team ever. And suddenly there's this miraculous turnaround and you go from punching holes in couch cushions to rattling the walls with your joyous jump. You're like, this is the greatest team of all time. I would prefer you not ask Carolyn if she's witnessed that firsthand in our home many, many times. There's nothing new under the sun after all. But, uh, but that was, that's just like a little glimpse of what happens with the disciples here multiplied a hundredfold. This, this joy, this reversal, this like, wow, he is actually here. And what you need to understand is that this event is completely unique. It, is, it really is new. There have been a lot of stories of people who um, died and were brought back to life. Lots of those kinds of stories. I've read somewhere on Amazon, take it for what it is, 
Uh, 5% of the global population has experienced um, some kind of near-death experience, including those who actually were medically dead and then came back to life. Uh, I've sh I shared a few weeks ago uh, with you a story about a world-renowned cardiologist in Florida who prayed for a man who had been medically dead for 40 minutes or so and saw him dramatically revived. The Bible has stories like that, except even more extreme. You've got Lazarus, who's in the tomb for four days before Jesus calls him out. You've got Tabitha, a follower of Jesus, who uh, was dead, and Peter prayed for her, and she came back to life. But here's the thing I always point out about those stories, which is that they were temporary delays of death, not, not true resurrections, because they still died again. There's not some 2,000-year-old man named Lazarus walking around Israel right now. You would have, I know the news media is kind of suspect. You would have heard about that by now. There's not some abnormally, freakishly elderly uh, woman named Tabitha scaring people on the beaches of Tel Aviv right now. They died again. Jesus didn't. He rose, and he didn't just, he didn't just see the difference with Jesus. He didn't just go into death and then come back. He went into death, and then he burst through it onto the other side in a wholly different kind of body. And I know that sounds strange. Trust me, I don't say it, and I think that sounds normal. Everybody should understand that immediately. I know it sounds strange, but this is how Paul describes the resurrection body in his letter to the Corinthians. He says that it is imperishable. He says that it's glorious, that it's powerful, that the resurrection body is not subject to decay or to sickness or to death, that it is a spiritual body, which doesn't mean that it's invisible, that it's somehow like, like non-physical, because again, he goes, touch me, feel me, he eats and drinks, but it's transformed, it's a transformed body, which is why you get these weird stories in the Gospels after the resurrection of Jesus. You get him appearing in the middle of a room behind locked doors. You get the story that, that Brent read earlier about these disciples who spend all day with him. And they should know what Jesus looks like because they're disciples. They spend all day with him. They don't know who he is. They see him breaking bread and suddenly go, whoa, it's Jesus. And he just disappears just like that. It's because his body is, is transformed that this resurrection body is not, is not held to the same physical laws of this world. It's not held to death in the way that ours is. And what you need to understand as well is that in one sense, the Jews in the first century, this is kind of what they expected. This was, this was their, their hope. Uh, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 12, uh, the prophet says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. See, the Jews in the first century world did not think that after you die, your invisible soul floats up somewhere above the skies where you spend eternity bouncing on clouds like some extraterrestrial trampoline park. Now, that's, not, that's not what they were looking forward to. They believed in the resurrection of the body. But they didn't, and to eternal life. But they didn't, they didn't expect it to happen in the middle of history. And they certainly didn't expect it to happen to one person in the middle of history. Which is why the resurrection of Jesus is so unique. Because here in the middle of history is the complete and total defeat of death by one person. Death has been defeated in Christ Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Now again, 
I know that that sounds crazy, but, I, and, and this is familiar ground because I, I say this every Easter and sometimes in between, but, it, but how else do you explain the rapid spread of Christian faith in, in Jerusalem? Where, where, where the tomb was. If the tomb wasn't empty, anybody could have been like, what are you dummies talking about? There's the tomb. There's his body. But, the, but Christian faith spreads rapidly in Jerusalem, in Israel. How do you explain that? How do you explain how these disciples who are terrified for their lives, who know that they're next, in one moment are all of a sudden going out proclaiming to everyone that Jesus has been risen from the dead, a claim that would land almost all of them in, in, in well, that they would get basically all of them killed, and none of them would recant. How do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain all the eyewitnesses that are listed in Scripture? How do you explain how a guy like Paul full of power and influence and a zeal to stamp out the church, who probably would have given the the chances of a resurrection like Jesus about a 0% chance in history. How do you explain him in a moment, dramatically, suddenly reversing course and telling everybody that he had met the resurrected Jesus and that this claim would land him in all kinds of trouble and hardship? How do you explain that? Jesus rose from the dead. Not a resuscitation, not a revival, but a true resurrection. Look, if there's anything that is tiresome in our world that just repeats itself over and over and over again, it's death, isn't it? Nobody escapes it. Everybody dies. But here, for the first time in history, somebody has beaten death. Somebody has defeated death. Somebody has, has been raised from the dead to everlasting life in a resurrection body. Something new. I'm telling you, on Easter Day 2,000 years ago, something truly new, something unparalleled before or after happened under the sun. Jesus rose from the dead. That's something new that happened in the past. Now, Paul links that to something new, truly new, under the sun that's going to happen in the future. He says that we, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're going to come back to the whole united with him in a death like his later on. But, but notice that Paul says that's something that happened in the past. We have been united with him in a death. And then he says we will be united with him in a resurrection, something that is coming. We will be united in a resurrection like his. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying that whoever trusts in Jesus, that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to you. That the same resurrection, into the same kind of resurrection body that Jesus underwent, you will undergo if you are in him. This is what Paul says in, in his letter to the Philippians. He says, We eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He is going to make our bodies like his glorious body. See, in that way, Easter is not just a historical event. It is that, despite what some people believe. But it's not just a historical event. Easter is essentially the movie trailer. It's the sneak peek at what is to come. It's the guarantee. It's the promise of what will happen to all who trust in Jesus. Our bodies will be made like his. And it's not just our bodies. It's not just us. It's all of creation. 
In, uh, in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapter 21, there is this vision of a new heavens and a new earth. Remember, uh, our eternal destiny is not an extraterrestrial trampoline park, right? Renewed creation, a new heavens and a new earth where there is all the, all the brokenness, all the death of this world has been, has been washed away. It's been wiped away. God has judged it, cast it out forever, and there is this new creation populated by new bodies, resurrection bodies that are suited for that new creation. It's a little bit like, uh, like I've noticed on YouTube now, there are some videos that you can watch in 4K, right? 2160 uh, resolution, which, you know, 1080 used to be a big deal. 2160, incredible. I would imagine that the glories of 4K video are pretty incredible, right? That, like, it's really sharp, really clear. The thing is, our pedestrian home internet can't handle the glories of 4K uh, resolution. So it's just constant, like, freezing and buffering. It's a horrible thing. In a very, very slightly similar way, our bodies are not able to handle the glory of the new creation. And so this is the promise of Easter. It's the promise of, of Romans 6 that God is going to do something about that. He's going to dramatically upgrade our bodies so that they are capable of, of being in this new heavens and this new earth. This is the hope that we have at Easter. Revelation 21 again says not only that God is going to make us new, but that he's going to make all things new. That he's going to cast out forever everything and everyone devoted to sin and to death and to evil. But that he is going to make us new and make all things new. And when I say that Easter gives us this hope, I don't mean it in the sense of a kind of a worldly, wishy-washy hope where it probably won't actually happen. You know, like, I hope that someday it doesn't cost me $70 to fill up my little hatchback. It's probably, that, it probably is not going to happen, right? Let's be honest. But it's not that kind of hope. It's something so much more solid. It's based on something so much more real. Our hope for the future is based on what has happened in the past, on Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead. And so something truly new under the sun is going to take place in the future. We who belong to Christ are going to be raised to life, and God is going to make all things new. So God is going to make all things new. He's, done, he's going to do something new in the future. He's, he's done something new in the past through the resurrection of Jesus. But he's going to do, can do, wants to do something new in your life today, now. Again, in verse 4, he says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. We can live a new life. How? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. And what it boils down to in Romans 6, these really, really dense and packed verses, is that it comes down to identifying with Jesus. He says, were you buried with him in a death, raised with him from the dead, united with him in a death like his, united with him in a resurrection like his. It is being identified with Jesus. That's what it's all about. And on the one hand, identity is a really, really big deal for people in, in our world, isn't it? Really huge deal. People are trying to figure out, especially when you're, when you're an adolescent, young adult, but, but I think for everybody, we're trying to figure out who we are. 
what makes us us? What makes us stand apart in the world? What's the core of our identity? And, and we hear this a lot in conversations these days, especially about race and gender and sexuality, that people believe that this is absolutely core to who they are and it drives many of the decisions that they make. But, but even though for various reasons those have become ground zero for discussions of identity in our world, people can, can attach their identity to all kinds of things. When I was 12 years old, um, entering my teen years in my little rural town of Manitoba. Oh, we got the picture up. There it is. There's, there, there are the glasses. They weren't cool back then. Don't worry. Uh, so when I, was, when I was 12 years old, entering my teen years, I latched on to the fact that I was technically an American. My, my parents had been doing some uh, sh- short-term church planting in El Paso, Texas when I was born. So I was born in good old El Paso. And, uh, but they were from southeastern Manitoba, and less than a year after I was born, they moved back to southeastern Manitoba. So I was officially a dual American and Canadian citizen from birth, but let's be honest, claiming that I was somehow more American than Canadian, that was always going to be a sham. But I rode that. I, 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 I was drawn to that because it made me feel, I think it made me feel special, it made me feel unique, it made me feel set apart in rural southeastern Manitoba. So I told all my friends all the time, I'm actually American. I'm not really Canadian, I'm really American. You know? Uh, there was, a, we, we, there was a, I remember once there was a basketball practice at the same time as a hockey game. I was on the hockey team and I was a pretty good player. I was one of the better players on the team. I went to the basketball practice just to show them how un-Canadian I really was. My seventh grade teacher, she, uh, she had a pet peeve about kids saying the word suck, which, you know, teenagers in the late 90s habitually said. And if you said that word and she caught you, then there was, you had to choose some kind of consequence. And most, most kids uh, would choose to, like, run around the school building once or twice. Uh, when I got caught in the act of saying this particular S word, I chose on my own volition and without any academic credit whatsoever to write a research paper on the U.S. of A. And I mean, it was, it was a seventh grade research paper, so it was mostly copying and pasting from Microsoft and Carta. But, but, <laughs> but still, I was, this, was, this was my identity. I was American and I drove my decisions. It kind of, it, it, it made me feel like I was set apart. So on the one hand, identity is huge for people. We want to identify with something. We want to know this is what makes me, me. This is at the core of who I am. But on the other hand, I kind of think that in the church, in the modern Western church, we have, we have really underemphasized how central identity is to faith. And I think maybe that's because we haven't wanted to scare people off. We don't want people to think this is going to take everything We don't want to raise the bar too much. And and so instead, we kind of try to get people to just say a prayer. You know, say these words and bing, bang, boom, you got your eternal salvation, your ticket to heaven. Or we we try to get people to just agree to a set of, of beliefs as if the point of Christian faith is just to have the right set of opinions. Or we, or we try to encourage behavioral adjustments. So try to get people to attend church regularly, which in the modern Western church is once a month or two. Uh, or you try to get them to give generously, give, give of their money, or, or pray before meals. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. All of those things are actually really good, right? Like confessing your sins, praying, being part of corporate worship, uh, believing rightly about God and about life, all of those really important things. But there's something way, 
way bigger than that in faith. There's something deeper. There's something deeper that actually drives all of that other stuff. And it's identity. It's our identity in Christ. Dane Ortland wrote a book recently called Deeper. I wholeheartedly recommend it. And he had this line that really caught me. He said, to grow as a disciple of Christ is not adding Christ to your life, but collapsing into Christ as your life. He's not a new taught priority competing with the other claims of reputation, finances, and sexual gratification. He's asking you to embrace the free fall of total abandon to his purpose in your life. That's it. Following Jesus is not about adding him to your life, another priority, even if it's the top one. It's about collapsing into Christ as your identity. This is who you are. And in case you think I'm overstating this, in the New Testament, Paul uses language about being in Christ in one form or another over 200 times. What do you think he means by that? In Christ. He means identifying with Jesus. This is who you are. He says, he says in, uh, in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul goes, I no longer live. I am no longer Paul in the sense that you once knew all those things that used to identify me, my ethnicity, my family heritage, my work, my accomplishments, all of that. I am no longer, I, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. He actually lists a lot of those things in Philippians 3, and he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, this is all I want. All those things that used to identify me in the past, they're done, they're gone. It's all Christ. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship in his sufferings. I want to be in Christ. See, here is what Christian faith is all about. It's not about just adhering to a bunch of behavioral guidelines. It's not just about saying a prayer, saying the certain right words. It's, it's not just about um, uh, believing the right set of, of things. It is identity. It is, it is identifying with Jesus. It is being crucified and raised again. If you are in Christ, you have died. You have been crucified. You have died to yourself. You have died to a life lived for yourself, for your own glory, to satisfy your own pleasures, your own desires, your own dreams. You have died. And you have been raised to life. You have been raised to a new life that is lived in Christ, for Christ, with Christ. You have been raised with new power to live a life that is pleasing to him through the Holy Spirit. You have been raised to a whole new life in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. That's who you are. You have been made new. 
And this new identity changes how you see the world. It changes how you see life. It changes how you make decisions. It changes your motivations. Again, it makes you new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. In Christ, you are new. And so this Easter Sunday, 2022, I have good news for you. That in a world where things just feel like they're tiresomely on repeat, that God has broken into the past and he's done something truly new under the sun. He has defeated death. He has raised Jesus to, the, to, to, uh, to new, uh, eternal, everlasting life. God has, is going to do something new in the future. He is going to raise all who belong to Christ in a new heavens and a new earth, and he can do something new in your life today, give you a new identity, a new purpose in Christ. You are crucified and you are raised to new life. Come on, amen? Now there's a word in Romans 6 that I haven't really mentioned much, and it's the word baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is the physical embodiment, it's the sign, it's the witness of this new identity. In baptism, someone goes under the water. It's, it's, like they are, it's like they are being laid into a grave. It's a morbid image, I know, but they're being laid in a grave. They are dying to themselves. They are, are identifying with Jesus in his crucifixion. And when they come up out of the water, they are identifying with the resurrection of Jesus. They are saying, I am a new creation in Christ. I am living for him now, not for myself. And we are so blessed this morning because we have somebody in our midst, Nicole, who wants to be baptized. <laughs> who wants to be baptized to you here on, uh, baptized here on Easter Sunday as, as, a, as a sign, as a witness to you of how Christ has made her and is making her into a new creation. And so we're going to hear her story, and, uh, and then we're, we're, going to, we're going to see her die to herself, raise to life, uh, and then we're going to sing a final song right after that. So let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll watch Nicole's story. Jesus, we praise you today because you have overcome death. You have won the victory. Something truly new under the sun has broken in to this world. And you're doing it in our lives. Lord, we praise you because of the new thing that you are doing in us. The new thing you're doing in our church. The new thing you're even doing in our community. Lord, we love you. We, we long for you. We pray, Lord, come and fill us even more. May we die to ourselves and be raised again in new life in the glory, by the glory of the Father. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would be glorified now in, in Nicole's story and in her baptism and that you would stir our hearts, Lord, to devote our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up, um, I had two younger brothers and a younger sister, and um, we were all pretty close in age. And uh, most of my life, I was left in charge of my siblings, so I spent a lot of time entertaining them and um, making them happy, and um, also just 
spending a lot of time by myself. I feel like God's always been in my life. I've always been afraid of God, I guess. The fear of God's always been put in me. Um, I think I've had a very misinformed life about God and the church. And uh, so I, was, I think that's where my fear came from, um, is because I felt like everything I did was wrong and that I was gonna end up in hell. And I was left alone a lot. So I would be um, thinking about that quite a lot. Um, death and um, what's gonna happen and the feeling of being unloved um, and, and, and how that feels being so angry all the time and not understanding um, love and not feeling love. Um, so I never thought that God loved me. My mom deci decided that um, she was gonna leave my dad and so she uh, took the younger siblings and um, moved. And I remember when she was moving, I asked her um, why she was taking them and not Dryden and I, my brother. And uh, she said, there's still hope for them. And I remember that moment because I was 13 and I didn't see my mom for a long time after. And that was pretty much the last thing she said to me. Um, eventually, and she moved to a new, uh, different province. And so my dad was dealing with some major depression. He couldn't be a father. So I kind of had to step up for my brother and my dad and take care of them. And then, so eventually we followed my mom to the, to the next province because my dad didn't want to be away from my siblings. And I was still rejected from her, kind of like, you're not my problem anymore. And then, and then moving from Alberta to BC was quite hard. There's a lot of different um, people and uh, the people do different things like drugs and alcohol. And I really tried hard to fit in. And um, 14, I was um, addicted to substances um, and getting progressively worse with from alcohol to other drugs to hard drugs and all the way up until about 26 years old. So good decade. So it was quite difficult. Eventually, I, I just, I really did not feel like myself. I just kept letting people take advantage of me. I didn't feel like I was being true to myself and I didn't like how everyone treated me and it's about six years ago I seven years ago I quit smoking cigarettes quit hard drugs and then six years ago I quit alcohol and I and and I remember that was the first time I felt the presence of Jesus around me was when I quit smoking and I was out in public and I'd smile at someone and they'd smile back at me instead of looking at me with pure disgust and I felt like that's what I want to do I want to be happy and I want to make other people happy a kid three years ago and so this is probably the one of the turning points for me is thinking about what kind of future I want my daughter to have what I want the community around her to be like and what I want her to believe in and and I don't want her to be scared like me every night and so I was some um, considering checking out a church to see if I could have a nice community I was always worried that I wouldn't be accepted because I didn't believe in God at this point and I didn't want I didn't think that I would be accepted. I was looking around and I eventually found a church and I had a discussion with the pastor who had a similar life experience as I did. He has so much faith and so much love in the Lord and trust that his life would be better. And I just, I, I looked at that and I really 
It made me believe in God. Like if this man who's been through the same things as me can overcome that, become a great father, because he's got faith in the Lord, maybe there's something there. Having Jesus in my life has taken off so much of the burden of feeling that I have to save my family, save my siblings, save the people around me. Um, do it. I can let God and Jesus take that and, and just let him take care of me. Um, and I feel like the weight that it's taken off of me has been so like life-changing. When Jesus died on the cross and um, died for our sins, it's something I can't even fathom because it's, I don't feel like we're worthy. Um, but yet we are, and he did it for us. And I guess I just keep thinking about um, like Saul like, and, and how, he, how he said that Jesus died for the sinners and of them, I'm the worst. And I know there's worse people than I am, but from what I've done in my life, um, I do feel like I'm pretty bad. <laughs> well, it's pretty bad. And so I feel like that he can save me and he can save anyone. Baptism to me is a great way to show publicly to the people you love um, what's truly in your heart. Um, it's like an outward um, way to show how you feel on the inside. And I cannot wait to be baptized to show my love for Jesus and the faith that I have in him and to continue on this journey um, all in with Jesus. so much Nicole for for sharing that and I know there's not a lot of dry eyes in this place right now so we thank you for that uh, this passage came to mind as I was thinking about this and this moment it's from Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 it says be strong and courageous do not be afraid or terrified because of them for the Lord your God goes with you he will never leave you nor forsake you and that's the father's heart for you is that he will never leave you nor forsake you, and that his invitation to you is to be strong, to be courageous. He goes before you in that. He, he models that for you. And so, yeah, as you go from here, go from this moment, the Lord is with you, so be strong and courageous in that. So Ruth's going to pray for you. Oh, Lord, I thank you for my sister, whom you fearfully and wonderfully made in your image. And I pray at this time, as she dies to herself and rises in you, that your Holy Spirit will fill her to overflowing, anoint her for all you have for her, that her life may just glorify you in newness, in freshness. I thank you for all you have done in her life, all you did for her. And I just pray for her, strengthen her, just set her on fire. I know you've already done that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. We thank you for Nicole. This whole community thanks you for Nicole and the beauty that you have given us in her, the special gifts that you have given us in her. 
Praise you, Father. Praise you, Lord. May your power and glory be upon her. Just shine through her. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, I have a few questions. Yeah. Do you trust in Jesus who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. Awesome. And do you surrender your life to Jesus who rose from the dead as Lord of your life? Yes. Awesome. at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through His Word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make Him known. We believe He is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through Him. May you know more of Him and make Him known today. We'd love to hear more from you.